Good morning, friends. Welcome again to Bethany Northeast. My name's Silas, associate pastor here. Um, And if you would, join me for a word of prayer um, before we explore God's word. Holy God, thank you for the gift of this day. We are grateful for the life um, that we can live. We pray that this word this morning would be faithful to your written word and um, that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Bless our time this morning and may we discern your voice. And everyone said, amen. All right, so a quick poll of the room. Has anyone ever heard of the term expressionism, specifically when it comes to art? Expressionism. A lot of hands. All right, this is good. This is good. This will be helpful. Um, If you didn't raise your hand, that's okay. We will learn in this moment. Whether you've heard of expressionism or not, my guess is you've seen expressionist art before. So if we could get that first picture up there. Okay, my guess is you've seen this. Does this look familiar to everyone? Right? The Scream by Edvard Munch. Okay, expressionism began in the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s in Germany, and as a movement, it tried to present the world solely from a subjective perspective. Right? So expressionism comes after realism and impressionism. Right? This is the art form, trying to express things from a subjective perspective. So look at the color, right? look at the distortion, the form here. It all kinds of blends together. It's not perfectly clear um, what is what. And all of this is meant to create a radical emotional effect in order to evoke ideas or moods, right? So the point is to allow the viewer, us, to conjure or discover a sense of meaning. And all those different meanings are part of the art. That's what this is trying to do. Could we go to the next one? So this one is obviously a contrast to something like the scream. This one is more, um, uh, it's more clear. Right, so this is a Monet here. This is part of Impressionism. This happens before in France. Again, it still evokes ideas and emotion, but notice how it does it. Right? It doesn't do so by um, causing you to explore the thing itself. It's kind of telling you a scene. Right? It's depicting a thing. It's like a picture. So it evokes ideas, but it does so in a different way. And Can we go to the next one? So when we put them side by side, I think it's clear, right? Everyone can see the differences. Expressionism here, impressionism here. And when we do this, we see that one is, again, trying to evoke our emotions in a different way. Okay? Is everyone following? Okay. Didn't know you were going to get art history, but here we are, living in the overflow. It's good. Um, If we could then... Go to the next one. So this is called Entering Jerusalem. And this is by an expressionist painting or painter called, um, named Wilhelm Morgner. And before taking art really seriously, he trained to be a minister. And eventually he died in World War I. But I want you to reflect on this scene for a moment. 
Right? Take it in. It's called entering Jerusalem. What does it evoke? What does it provoke? What do you see in this painting from your perspective? Notice the color. Notice the forms. Notice the distortion. Notice how you're feeling when you look at it. It could be confusion. That is fair. In our passage today, different groups of people try to categorize and characterize Jesus in their own distinct ways. So different groups, they construct narratives, they form opinions, and they try to make a claim about who Jesus is supposed to be. So here's what I mean. If you're following along in your outline, the first way that we see people in John 12 try to typecast Jesus, try to label Jesus, is Jesus the conquering king. This is Jesus the conquering king. This is the first point in your outline. Take a look at the text. In verse 12, the first thing we read is that there's a large crowd who had come to the feast. Now, which feast are they coming to? Well, they're coming to the Passover feast. And it's important for us to understand the significance of this feast. The Jewish people celebrated multiple feasts, but in terms of timing for our passage, in light of Passover... um, All of this is trying to connect Jesus to the story of Israel, the history of Israel. So this is known as the meta-narrative of the story, or the meta-narrative, the history of Israel. So simply put, Passover was celebrated to commemorate how the Jewish people, how all of Israel were liberated by God through the leadership of Moses from slavery in ancient Egypt. So... In a word, Passover is liberation, right? It's about liberation. Passover is a festival about liberation. And we also learn that the large crowd, in verse 12, they had come, right? They are present in Jerusalem to participate in the feast. And this is the crowd that we heard um, that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So take note of this. The makeup of this crowd is also important. Remember, it's Passover, so there are three festivals, typically, that Jewish people are required to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to, right? Jerusalem, the center of the Israelite world. And right before our passage, we know that we are within six days before Passover, which means that Jerusalem is particularly full of people from all over the land, right? It's not just people in Jerusalem, it's people from all over Israel, And people would arrive early because if you've traveled a really far distance, you've arrived in Jerusalem, but then find out you can't participate because you haven't uh, done any of the purification rites um, once you get to Passover, you needed time. So people were filling the city beforehand. This was a very, um, it wasn't like a municipal thing. It wasn't just people in Jerusalem. It was all of Israel. But then we also hear that there's Greeks there. There's other people there. So it's almost like an international event. People are there from all over the land. So bottom line, representatives from everywhere celebrating a feast that is about liberation. 
and it's happening in the center of the Israelite world. So we know why people are in Jerusalem. We know who makes up the large crowd in Jerusalem. But now notice what the crowd does once they hear that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Notice what they do. Verse 13, they take branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now remember, the Jewish people are living under Roman occupation. So it's been a while before Jesus was born, and in the wake of this occupation, there's a group of revolutionaries in Israel known as the Maccabees. And this is like a guerrilla warfare group, right? They're the they're rebellion. These are the Maccabees. And for these warriors, many of their scholars, many, many scholars agree that palm fronds, palm branches, they were understood to be the nationalistic symbol that the Maccabees took up, right? That the Israel, the Israel um, resistance took up. So the significance of palm branches, palm trees is important here. The Jewish resistance uses this symbol. And so specifically how they did was they would wave palm fronds and branches and lay them down uh, during military victories. So since this is the case, make sure you don't miss this, okay? What is being attached to Jesus by the crowd as he enters Jerusalem, the center of the world, is a nationalistic type of um, elevation for who Jesus is. Like, based on the action alone, the crowd is welcoming Jesus like he is a conquering warrior. Remember, you do this, you wave people in when you've won a victory. People are coming back home. The branches are waving, and all of this is done when a hero comes back. But in this case, the crowd is so hyped, they're so excited They're so sure in their understanding of who Jesus is supposed to be that they're celebrating their champion before he's even overthrown Rome. Like, are we catching that? They're celebrating before he's actually overthrown Rome. And check this out. They cry, Hosanna, which which literally means please save or please deliver. That's what that means. And then they quote Psalm 118, And Psalm 118 is a psalm all about God's steadfast love that will never fail us. And then the crowd calls him the king of Israel. The crowd is not being subtle about who they think Jesus is. There's a progression. Do you see it? Right? They start by a belief of who Jesus is. They welcome him in like a victorious warrior. They quote a psalm that calls Jesus the fulfillment of God's love. And then... They just call him king. This is how confident the crowd is in their identification of who Jesus is and will be. They see him like he is a conquering king. But the crowd isn't the only group in our passage who has something to say about Jesus. Right, for the crowds, again, Jesus, the conquering king, but for the Pharisees in this passage, they see Jesus, point two in your outlines, they see Jesus as the impending threat. 
They see Jesus as the impending threat. So throughout the Gospels, Jesus' relationship is pretty tenuous with the Pharisees. Like, we've talked about it before. Jesus seems to be a threat to them on multiple levels. And in the story, right before our passage today, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. An incredible miracle is witnessed by many, many people. And I want you to note how the Pharisees respond to Lazarus being raised from the dead. 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Take away both our place and our nation. So right after this, then they plot to kill Jesus. They plot to kill Jesus. But things don't end there. If we read further to the verses right before our passage today, we will see that they don't only plan to kill Jesus. Look at 12 verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who's just been raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. For the Pharisees, Jesus is an impending threat. And do not miss this. Jesus, for them, is everything that is wrong in and with the world. Like, he's such a threat that they're planning not only to kill him, but to kill someone who has been healed by him. Jesus defiles himself by dealing with sick people and by eating with outcasts, and then by encouraging other people to do the same, right? In their minds, he is leading the people astray because they're breaking all the rules that have been passed down from generation to generation And those rules are meant to keep Israel holy and pure. Jesus is a threat to the established religious structures and historic spirituality. And in the minds of the Pharisees, the ways in which Jesus challenges their worldview is nothing short of menace. So, I mean, think about it. You have this man in his early 30s overruling the authority of people who have dedicated their lives and dedicated years, right, to preserve and maintain the religious structures in Jerusalem. How else would you expect people who were part of that society, part of that club, to react? For the Pharisees, Jesus represents, he indicates, a bigger problem. People aren't taking God seriously enough. And so on top of this, on top of this larger societal decay, the thing that irks the Pharisees more than anything else is that they will lose their place and nation. 
They'll lose their relevance. They'll lose their authority. They'll lose their vocation. They'll lose their sense of meaning. Are you getting now a sense of what's at stake for the Pharisees? Right? How the fact that so many people have started following Jesus is not just a one-pronged threat, but instead is a multi-angled threat. And it's challenging, again, the Pharisees' worldview, vocation, spirituality, sense of purpose, identity. For the Pharisees, Jesus is an imminent threat. And in their minds, they have all the evidence to prove it. Jesus is a threat. So what do we make of this? Two groups saying polar opposite things about Jesus. Two groups saying completely opposite things. One group is saying he is the conquering king. The crowd says this. And then the other group, the Pharisees, say he's an imminent threat. And he's already chipping away at the fabric of society. How does Jesus actually enter the story here? Jesus is the subversive Christ. Jesus is the subversive Christ. Point three. We talked about the Maccabees, and like other military groups, when a victor returned from battle, they would ride in on either a horse, multiple, multiple horses, maybe a chariot. But Jesus doesn't do this, does he? He enters the city riding on a donkey. And I think it's fascinating that we don't get any details about how Jesus responds to the fanfare around him. We don't get any details about whether he, like, patted the little children on the way down. We We don't know. We don't get any details. For the people who view him as a conquering king, I wonder if they saw Jesus come in on a donkey. And then they took that as even more proof about how Jesus is really going to bring the pain. Right? Like, they, they might think, Jesus is so hard, like he's such a G, that he doesn't need to roll into town with uh, an army or chariots to liberate people. He doesn't need any of that. Like, he can roll in on a donkey. He's so powerful, and he can still overthrow the Romans. Like, this guy, he, he's legit. He doesn't care. He does what he wants. And then for the people who saw him as an imminent threat, I wonder if they saw Jesus come in on a donkey and thought that this was even more proof, even more proof that Jesus is a false Messiah. Like this, this seals it. They think the true Messiah is going to be robed in power. This guy, he's a sideshow. Like he's coming in on a donkey. That's not what... That's not what a true leader does. That's not what someone with real power does. And so basically, they think he's a guy who has been able to gain a following. He's done a couple tricks, right? He's gone viral, okay? And then 
Verse 18 says it all. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done a sign. Well, for the people who saw Jesus as a threat, the fact that he has this many followers is justification that they are the true holy ones and the world, everyone else, has gone after Jesus. Like, he's leading people astray. Regardless, in both cases, it is clear that the people who saw him as king and the people who saw him as threat both failed to grasp what Jesus is actually trying to do here. Like what he's all about. What kind of kingdom Jesus is trying to inaugurate. So look at verse 23. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But catch this now. The glory that Jesus is talking about is nothing like the glory that the crowd and the Pharisees are talking about. It's not like it at all. So for the crowd, glory goes hand in hand with power. And the security that will come when they wield power over another. Like, this is the kind of glory and power the crowd wants. This is what they mean by glory. And rather ironically, the Pharisees believe the exact same thing. Except in this context, the Pharisees know that they are a little higher on the social ladder. And so... It's in their best interest to keep the status quo, to maintain the status quo, and to uphold everything that's already there. Like, we see this explicitly in verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Convicting word, isn't it? Like we could do a whole sermon on just this verse and tracing this out. But that's not this sermon. Jesus is the subversive Christ. Jesus is the subversive Christ. And in this instance... Jesus is trying to bring a kingdom that is a challenge to the way that the world is. He's trying to challenge how the world is. Throughout his whole ministry, Jesus is trying to tell people that God's value system is different than the value system of the world and of the age. But no one really seems to get what he's saying. No one's getting it. And the thing is, we're not any better than the crowd and the Pharisees when it comes to this. So a friend, he put it so well. He put it this way. Listen closely. We delight in the justice of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means grief for our enemies. We delight in the mercy of God, 
but at least in part because we imagine that the mercy frees us from responsibility to work for justice in the world. We delight in the power of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means we are protected from suffering that others have to, have to face. We believe in the truth of God, that at least in part because we take pride in being right and we want to be known as knowledgeable and wise. We delight in the law of God because we imagine it provides a moral framework that allows us to sort neatly right from wrong, order from disorder, the good folks from the bad folks. We delight in the calling of God because we imagine it means we can find success in our work and make a name for ourselves. Just a little bit. Just a little bit in part. And we delight in the presence and work of God. But at least in part, because we think, we, we like how that experience leaves us feeling. And we want to advance quickly in our faith, in depths and in heights. Jesus is subversive, though. And here's the crux. Here's the crux of the reality here. While the crowd says, Jesus is for us. He's the conquering king. And the Pharisees say, Jesus is against us. He's an imminent threat. Jesus, the subversive Christ, is pointing out that the whole scale, the whole framework that both groups are using is a scam. The whole scale is wrong. They're using the wrong scale to measure how much glory they might possess, how much power they might possess, how righteous they are. They're using the wrong scale, though. So like the passage we just heard, we delight in an attribute of God. But then we try and use God's attribute to serve our purposes. And the kicker is that we do this without even recognizing or knowing that we're doing it most of the time. So it's like that modern-day parable by David Foster Wallace. There's two little fish. They're swimming along one day. And then the next, or they're just coming across. There's an older fish swimming by. He goes this way. And they look at each other, give a nod, say hi. And then the older fish says, Morning, lads. How's the water? And he keeps swimming. And these two fish keep swimming a little bit. And then they look at each other and say, What's water? They have no clue. The crowd here and the Pharisees, like the two fish, have no idea what water is. They have no recollection that they're using the same scale and same value system, and Jesus is trying to flip that. He's trying to get at that. So they can't compute who Jesus is which is why they construct narratives, labels, identities, and they try and make Jesus digestible, manageable, useful. They try and make Jesus fit 
what they want Jesus to be. And these are both attempts to try and control Jesus. But Jesus lives with a different scale in mind. And this is pretty much the story of Easter. Jesus showing that scale. The story of Jesus in Luke 13 illustrates this perfectly. So Jesus is doing ministry, and then the Pharisees, they come to him, and they say, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. The Pharisees come, and they warn Jesus, get away from here. Now, have they been sent by Herod? Do they have their own agenda in mind? We don't know. The text doesn't say. But regardless, Jesus responds, and he says this, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. And then we get this famous line, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Behold, behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until the day, or until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is so bold. This is incredibly scandalous. Like, do you see what's happening? Herod comes with a threat against Jesus, says, I'm going to kill you. And Jesus responds, not to Herod directly, but to the messengers, to the Pharisees. He doesn't even address Herod. He says to the Pharisees, go and tell that fox that I'm busy doing work here today. I'm going to do work tomorrow. I'm going to do work on the third day. And I'm going to keep doing work. Work And there's nothing you can do about it. Herod, there's nothing you can do to stop my work. And what's so striking here is the blatant disregard for Herod's power that Jesus is showing here. So you see, when we read, go and tell that fox, we think that Jesus is referring to Herod as what? Sly, as crafty, kind of greasy. Right? That's, what, that's what we think when we say, Jesus says, go tell that fox. And that could be the case. Some have argued that Jesus is referring to Herod as a fox because a fox is unclean. Right? A fox isn't kosher, so it's an insult that way. But rabbinic culture, in rabbinic culture, sorry, um, in rabbinic culture, there is a common understanding that foxes are nothing when compared to a lion. So there's a famous rabbi who said, it is better to be the tail of a lion than the head of a fox. Or there's another common saying by young rabbis. If you were a young rabbi growing up in the synagogue and someone asked you a question, you were expected to say, why do you ask the opinion of me, a fox, when we are in the presence of lions? Scholars who are much more knowledgeable than I. 
Jesus isn't saying that Herod is crafty, even though he might be. Right? Jesus is belittling Herod's understanding of power. And he's saying, Herod, you think you are powerful, but you're just a really average-sized fish in a pond. And you're not even the biggest fish here. Like, Pilate's going to come, and he's above you. You think you have all the power, but you have none. So Jesus, he critiques the whole scale of power for Herod, for the Pharisees, for the crowds. And then catch this. Jesus ends by saying that he is like a hen who gathers her brood under her wings. We all realize that foxes eat hens, right? Like, hens are fox food. But this is exactly it. Jesus is saying to Herod, the scale that you think matters when it comes to power is not real power. There is nothing you can do to stop me from incubating my eggs, to stop me from gathering, from, stop me from gathering my chicks, to stop me from cultivating life and bringing life into being. There's nothing you can do. Because the scale of power that you think you are high on doesn't actually exist. So back to our passage in John, verse 24. Real power looks like this. A grain of wheat that falls, dies, is buried, remains, and then sprouts and bears much fruit. This is what Jesus is about to do. Again, this is the story of Easter. This is the power Jesus is going to exercise. So Jesus is the subversive Christ. And no label that people put on him, be it a label of conquering king by the crowd, or a label of impending threat by the Pharisees, none of those labels can co-opt the work and kingdom that God invites us to join him in. And this is what we celebrate. We'll celebrate God's invitation to join in the creation of a new, peaceable kingdom. And that kingdom subverts how we've been taught the world works. And this is what Lazarus comes to know once he's raised from the dead, right? It's kind of ironic. He's raised from the dead, new life. He has new life through Christ that's threatening the world. And immediately, then he's threatened by the world and says, we got to kill him. Like, we can't just kill Jesus. We have to kill you too. Those who receive life by Jesus' death must follow suit. So Jesus is the conquering king. Jesus is the impending threat. Jesus is the subversive Christ. As the band comes up, 
Could I get that um, Entering Jerusalem slide back up? We're going to do something a little out of the ordinary this morning. You know, it wouldn't be hard to parse out specific conclusions from each point. Like, there's a lot of meat that we went through. You know, typically we say, here's an application, take this, run with it. Here's a tactic. But as I was preparing this week, I felt like I was supposed to leave things a little more open. I don't know why I felt this way. I like to have things mapped out. I like to plan things. But this is how I felt we should land. What do you see in this painting? How is God present here? When I look at this painting, I see overlapping scenes. So in the foreground... I see one silhouette riding on a donkey while another is seated welcoming Jesus in. Welcoming their champion in. And notice, they're the same, right? If we go back to the the previous one. Notice, they're the same color, right? Same scene, same color. Welcoming him in with the idea of being a conquering hero, right? Of welcoming in a conquering hero to make the world right, to make Israel great, to restore its glory. And then in the background, I see another scene, a row of seven figures, right? All of them are similar. They're all unlike the foreground characters, But notice the one in the middle. Notice the central figure is marked by his otherness. It almost looks like he's being swarmed by the six other figures. Look how much he sticks out. He's so small. He's being swamped. He's being swarmed. In this scene, I see the Pharisees circling Jesus and branding him with otherness. I see people making interpreting Jesus as an imminent threat. And lastly, if we go to the next one, I see here a bridge between the foreground and the background. I see a haloed figure here transcend and blend into the donkey, blend into the people behind him, blend into the foreground characters. I see Christ there, bridging the gap between the foreground and the background. In this scene, I see a subversive Christ who transcends space and time, who allows himself to be misrepresented. Like, get that. Allows himself to be misrepresented. Who lives life by a different scale. Who seems to be walking towards us, away from us, Sometimes both. It feels that way. In this, I see a foreshadow of what's coming on Calvary. And in this, I see the complete immersion of Christ with the Pharisees, with the crowd, 
and with ourselves. Could we go to the full one again? What do you see? And how is God speaking to you this morning? As Adam plays, take some time and reflect on how you see yourself in this painting. How you see yourself in this story we looked at today. How you see yourself in the sermon we looked at. The groups identified. The ways that the things happen. Notice it all kind of blends together. Things aren't as clearly defined, but life isn't clearly defined, is it? Life sometimes puts us in the foreground or the background. Sometimes we don't even know where we are on the scene or what, we, what part of the scene we're representing. But that's okay. Obey the Lord, friends. God is here. The Spirit is here. How is God convicting you, comforting you, challenging you? What emotions are being stirred up in you? As we sing, if you'd like prayer, we have people eager to pray with you, ready to pray with you, to intercede with you and for you. But let God work in your life this morning. And know that God is near. We're going to take a minute and meditate on this story and this painting. And then we'll sing.